Yo, this is Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours. Follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter. Subscribe to our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Real Sankara Hours. We're also on SoundCloud for our RSS feed. Um, go to our Podbean, realsankarahours.podbean.com. Um, so, yeah, uh, b- b- before you know, we do the regular sort of announcements, this episode we're going to be talking about um, co- COVID-19 and also specifically uh, the sort of recent calls to open the economy back up, even though there's still a massive pandemic going on and the need for social distancing is still um, still very, very, very important. So this is Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson 5 on Twitter. And this is Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter. And yeah, days are leading into each other. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about any of this stuff anymore. I mean, I don't really... I've I've settled into being a recluse pretty well, and if it and I don't have to feel bad about it because it's what I'm supposed to do. I used to feel bad about becoming one, but I'm doing my patriotic duty right now, so that's fine. But <laughs> what's weird to, to me is that when you do go out, you're sometimes reminded that there are other parts of the country where it's like, you know, they're still basically living regular society. I mean. You know, certainly the homeless people I run into, I mean, <laughs> their, uh, their lives haven't changed as much. I mean, you know, and other people, like those idiot protesters who, you know, I mean, most of them are just like taking cute. Most of this is astroturfed as fuck, but you can't astroturf. We got to develop the astroturf uh, metaphor because it's like there still has to be a receptive ground for the astroturf to take hold. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. A receptive concrete. I don't know. But these people, these fucking idiots who, you know, I, one of the good things about the Trump era is like, these people can never tell anyone. They don't understand anything about politics anymore. But, um, yeah, it's like, I get, I guess I understand, you know, you got to think about things from the perspective of an idiot. You know, and that's what liberals are always unable to do because they can't ever imagine thinking about politics not as a smart person. And, you know, on some level, they don't really believe idiots should be allowed to participate in politics. And they don't really, in the actual, you know, sense of participatory democracy or whatever, but they have opinions and they're pandered to enough. And the veneer of democracy is still barely maintained in some way such that they think they can they're political actors and so they do this shit where it's like yeah if you have you know if you if you're not poor you know in america you've been told it is your god-given right to have every convenience you could ever imagine cater to you and so and that you know in the land of plenty um there should never be any, you know, interruption of your greatest material luxuries. And so you should. So the idea that like anything like this happens, because, you know, and I, 
When they talk about like bread lines in Soviet Union or whatever, it's like people are just waiting in line at a store. I mean, I have to do that now, right? But it's also like there were always bread lines in the sense that like you walk past a soup kitchen, you know, in any city, like people are waiting in line to get food, right? So, you know, but these people think that they should never have to wait in a line because... They're like the real Americans, whatever. So the fact that they do annoys them and they see it as an injustice. And, you know, I don't know how much any of that matters in the sense of like, uh, certainly not going to, I don't know if they're actually providing the political cover they say they, the Republicans think they would be, but it also may not matter because they could just fucking, they're basically deciding that like, yeah, we can't. Um, the market won't bear this and, you know, we have to do whatever the market says because it is the uh, highest God. I mean, economists are the high priests of the day and they operate in this sort of mystical authority. So it's, if the market says this, some of we have to abide by it. And some of that is ideology, but it's also just like the American state isn't functional to even step in and manage the economy like that at this point because we've spent right you know the the latter half of the 20th century and all the 21st you know developing it such that it could never do that and that's the whole point of the neoliberal project so you know on some level it's like uh yeah i I mean i don't fucking know so yeah i want to uh jump in and like so I mean, one one reason why, okay, because the argument that, uh, yeah, a lot of these morons who are like, there is this, there is, oh my god, there is this, uh, this fucking clip of the the mayor of Los Angeles, uh, sorry, of Las Vegas, not the mayor of La- Las Vegas, um, and she was calling for basically opening up fucking casinos in las vegas because yeah like and i think she literally said we'll be the test case and it's like oh, uh it, i don't think anyone who works at a casino is like yeah no sign me up sign me up i want to be a lab rat for the worst industry i mean in the entire world i mean and also next to cruise ships i mean casinos are other petri dishes for viruses because all those people oh my God, smoking dude. drinking t- touching the same slot machines and um yeah turn las vegas into a leper colony yeah and so you know but here's the thing is like so their argument is that like hey you know we need to jumpstart the economy back again and get people back to work at businesses but here's the thing even if like let's say theoretically uh, w- the entire country, quote unquote, goes back to work. It opens up, right? Right? Like we open up the economy again. There's no guarantee that everyone is gonna go- is going to go back to work because, okay, on one hand, you see like, okay, Florida opened up beaches, which is fucking stupid, but I hate to say it, kind of expected from Florida. Sorry, but you know, I'm, it's it's, uh, it's no surprise that Florida, the state of Florida, would do something like that, especially given. Well, yeah, Florida does not have has never had like a functioning theory of governance. No, no, uh, and also I'm still not over uh, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman killing him in Florida, so I'm still not over that. Anyway, so and I think uh, I believe um, Georgia, the governor, the governor of Georgia, called for. Uh, I think either he called for or it already happened. 
uh, reopening the state of Georgia from from uh, lockdown. But even if you do that, there is a poll done by uh, Associated Press and the University of Chicago. The majority of Americans support keeping the lockdown. So closing bars and restaurants, 76% favor uh, closing them versus 12% opposed. Um, requiring Americans to stay at home, 80%. 80% of Americans support um, requiring people to stay at home. Limit gatherings to 10 or fewer, 82% support that. So even if you open the economy back, even if you open up businesses and all that back up, there's no guarantee that people are going to go to those businesses because people are probably going to be too scared because they're not going to want to go outside and, and potentially get coronavirus and get sick. Yeah. You know, so so they're assuming that everyone is just going to go back to like Fuddruckers or Cheesecake Factory or whatever the fuck to, to stuff their face with whatever fucking food that's that that these businesses are yeah. selling so so there so that like that's why i think that's one of the biggest reasons why the the call for opening the economy back up is so stupid is because it's not guaranteed that the majority of people in this country are going to go to those businesses or even probably they don't even want to return to work because again it's reasonable like people don't people are afraid of getting the virus like i was just out um I had to pick my mom up from the clinic uh, earlier today, and, and I saw like when I was driving around, more and more people are wearing face masks. So Contra Costa County, where I live, just had a, a countywide order, which basically mandates people to wear face masks uh, when you go out in public. So everyone's wearing a face mask. A lot, like most people are wearing fa- face masks. Um, and a lot of stuff is, is kind of um, dormant. I mean, people are still driving around because, you know, because where i live is is still spread out so in order to get from one place to another you have to drive but um you know what like it's gonna be hard to go from people getting used to living under quarantine to going back to like whatever period of normal that uh these idiotic right-wing hyper-capitalist uh business people and politicians want yeah, it's stupid because we're basically in the kind of like a wartime mentality. And it's like, right. uh, if you're, I mean, war is great for the economy if the battle, if the fighting's not happening on your territory. But if it is, then like, yeah, your economy's in the toilet. Um, and it's like, it's like, yeah, it's imagine like during the middle of the Civil War, there were a whole bunch of people who are like, we need to keep the saloons open. We need to, uh, <laughs> you know, people... People need to be, even though there's a civil war going on, we still need to be able to go out and uh, get our hair cut or whatever. I can't cut your hair at home. I don't know. Right. But that's the thing. And it's like, look, even if you open it up, I mean, you can't like, like it'll like the economy's not going to come roaring back or whatever. Um, We're not going to get to the kind of, you know, wealth accumulation that we were. But, you know, of course, the people at the top are you know, making bank off of this because they're just consolidating and they're going to buy up everyone else that goes under. But my point is that, you know, you open it back up, diseases spike, cases spike, you have to close it back down, you open it back up. Yeah. It's basically like, uh, basically just trying to, they're basically propping the whole, I'm convinced basically that they're propping the whole thing up until the election, you know, and you know right now everything is just like band-aids and popsicle sticks Mm -hmm. and they're just you know 
They just got to push it over the line. And then, you know, after Trump gets reelected, um, then whatever. He's most likely going to get reelected. Sorry, I, I think um, I believe <laughs> um, it was the CDC chief or, or somewhat a similar official who said that, well, warned that um, there could be a second wave that's even worse than this one. Uh, there is one bit of good news from California. So. There is a researcher who said that because California implemented shelter-in-place policies largely, or, uh, mostly earlier than the rest of the country, the researcher said that California has, quote, crushed the curve, so the whole flattening the curve to make sure that our our hospital system is not overwhelmed. So right now, we're at the point where, like, our hospital system is, like, it's pretty good. Uh, so that that's that is hopeful. So it shows like okay. The- Congratulations, California. Some of us live in terrible states. Yeah, well, I, I I'm not. I don't like to stand any kind of politician, including someone like Gavin Newsom. But I will say, Gavin Newsom. I'll give him credit for having a functioning brain and some sense, some common sense to deal with a pandemic. Whereas contrast that with the mayor of Las Vegas, who's like, yeah, let's uh, let's uh, open up the casinos and we'll just have some social distancing in it. And we'll just let the free market decide it. Blah, 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 blah. Like contrast like yeah. Newsom, who's like, OK, everyone wear face masks, uh, close down businesses, social distancing. Um, we'll at least do that. And so far it's worked versus, yeah, a, a, a fucking idiot like the mayor of, of Las Vegas. And wow. I mean, I, I, I get in the sense it's like that's literally the entire economy of Las Vegas. Right. So yeah. The this is the, the whole thing is that like, yeah, if there if there were, you know, in an alternative reality where America was a functioning nation state um, and we aren't, we just have st- are still getting enough uh, super imperial super profits to paper paper over how non-functional everything is and when that starts to dry up which it will soon um be with because i think the end of the petrodollar is coming but we'll get to that a little bit later um but yeah it's like that's the only thing that you have so all right my point is that in an alternative version yeah the government could like step in and you basically you know, provide for people's needs such that, yeah, we don't, you know, UBI and, you know, just keep everything at the lowest possible level so that people can live and survive and ride this thing out. But we don't have a governmental system. We don't have a state, you know, structure that is capable of doing that and i mean part of that is neoliberalism part of it is the federal system and part of it is the way those two feed into each other where it's like call out the federal government to and let the states do everything but like viruses don't care about states people and like that's and dividing america up on states is not how the american economy works at all so it is it's always been a game you know basically by the right but the democrats you know always 
are always too feckless. I don't, or, you know, they go along with it. And now they're starting to sort of weaponize it in their own right. So I, I want to jump in. And so, so I, I kept saying the mayor of Las Vegas, her name is Caroline Goodman. Here are a couple lines from her interview with Anderson Cooper. Just, just so, just so you guys get a sense of the kind of genius that's running Las Vegas. Um, one of her lines was, I'd love everything wow. open because I think we've had viruses for years that have been here. We've never closed down the United States. We never closed down Nevada. We never, we've never closed down Las Vegas because that's our job. Um, she also said, I've lived a long life. I grew up in the heart of Manhattan. I know what it's like to be with subways and crammed into elevators. Well, you also didn't, I'm pretty sure, so she was born in 1939. Oh my God. That was 20 years after the Spanish flu pandemic. So she has not lived wait, during the, a pandemic. Wait, the mayor of Las Vegas is 80? Yeah. Jesus. And she also does not represent her constituency because there's an article in NBC News where a lot of Las Vegas workers are call, are basically pushing back on her comments. And one one of the things they said was, uh, we're not test subjects, we're people, we are employees. This is a quote from a bartender. So even the workers uh, who work at these Las Vegas casinos and, uh, and um, other establishments a lot of them don't want to go back to work. So that's another problem is that, yeah. like, let's say you try to open up the economy back up. Do the workers want to return to work and risk being exposed well, to a virus? Well, most workers don't have a choice. The yeah. Culinary Workers Union might be able to lay, weigh in. I don't know if they have actual political efficacy beyond, you know, doing whatever Harry Reid tells them to. But I should, I would say that... uh the idea that she's running Las Vegas, that's that's not true. The mayor <laughs> does not run Las Vegas. She she does she is responding to the people she's accountable to, which is casino owners. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they can only take they can only take so much before, you know. Yeah, the market can only bear so much. <laughs> it, it, here's another thing she said. First of all, I don't gamble. I used to gamble. I don't have the time. Well, she's now it sounds like she's gambling with the lives of fucking <laughs> the fucking people in her city. And yeah, like I mean, there are going to be people. I mean, yeah, obviously there are people who, especially essential workers, um, have no choice but to work. Um, because again, I think you know, like also what this pandemic is revealing is what jobs are actually necessary to keep actual society running like grocery stores uh people in truckers people mail people who deliver mail i mean the post office right now is in danger of of basically shutting down so we need the especially if you're if you're going to be you know in during months of quarantine you're going to need stuff like basic supplies so people are going to have to rely on mail Right, so that means FedEx, yeah. workers, UPS workers. Wow. So yeah, UP. Well, the Republicans have been trying to destroy the post office for a long time. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're you know they're salivating about this. I don't, I don't know if they're really going to be able to get away with it. That's that that's always their like end goal. That's like their ultimate game victory. That's like the the brass ring or whatever is them destroying the post office, privatizing the post office. I, but I don't know. It's yeah, or like uh... I'm sorry. I'm just reading through these. Oh, these, these fucking things she said. Another thing she said: 
We're not getting the truth. I know over the years, going back to the 1950s with the atomic bomb, don't worry about more testing in Nevada. You'll all be fine. Take a shower. <laughs> Just, what the fuck? Fucking boomer. God man. damn. Oh, fuck. She's not even a boomer. She's older than yeah. that. Yeah. Holy. Oh. I don't, yeah, I don't <laughs> understand that. Or de Blasio's like gonna hold a parade for essential workers. Like, are you are you insane? Stop! Why would you hold a parade, a socially distanced parade? Like, like what the hell is wrong with these people? I don't. And I don't get that. And what's the point of? I mean, look at um, I mean, before Bernie Sanders dropped out, the Democrats still wanted to hold elections, even when it was unsafe to do so. Which I mean, I feel like if this was done in any other country, we pr- we probably would have invaded. If this was happening, like, let's say, Venezuela, we would say, oh, this is a corrupt regime that is putting its citizens in danger. Therefore, America and the rest of the free world, we have to invade Venezuela because they're being run by a corrupt government. But now, like, Uh, our government's like, hey, let's have elections, even though there's a pandemic and it's unsafe to go out. And if you go out, you're probably going to die. We should have fucking elections because yay, democracy! Yay! Yeah, I mean, since you brought up Venezuela trying to look up what their response to it was and it was just like yeah they suspended all rent payments for six months um they basically did the things that like that's the dream scenario so you know say what you will about venezuela but uh they keep on ticking um somehow also um as 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 the uh as as like yeah no the trump administration is using this um period to really put the hammer down and i think maybe since we're talking they they want venezuela they want they ordered chevron to shutter all venezuela operations um <laughs> which is kind of insane Be, well and this is one of the things uh sidebar that i always wondered about venezuela is like why did uh the pdvsa's production decline so heavily there's never been an actual reason it's always just always the same mismanagement but Stuff like that doesn't happen by accident. Anyway, um, the interesting the interesting thing that I didn't expect to happen was the crash of oil prices. Which right, right, makes sense. But it was it was fascinating to think about because yeah, there's there are like tw- there are like twenty tankers just hanging out outside California still. Are they still there? I I don't know, but from what I understand, I think the reason Dylan Radigan did a really I know some on the left have issues with Jimmy Dore, but I will say Jimmy Dore and his interviews with Dylan Radigan, if you're trying to understand the economic response and all, all those details, the interviews that Jimmy Dore does with Dylan Radigan are very, very good. But the way Dylan Radigan explained it was basically <clears throat> uh, he was explaining futures trading. So in, in futures trading, you can trade um, commodities. So one of those commodities is... Oh, yeah. It's it's speculation. It's yeah. like based on what the price is going to be. Exactly, yeah. So basically, the pandemic has essentially fucked up the futures market, essentially, because they didn't anticipate... Because futures trading is based on uh, future speculations of what the price is going to be. So if you're trying to... Uh, like, future trading is basically... You buy a contract. You buy a contract at one point in time to purchase the delivery of said com- uh, of said commodity in the future. So since oil prices fluctuate, you know every month, you can lock in a price to be like, okay, I'm gonna buy this contract to purchase oil at X amount of dollars sometime in January. It's in January or whatever, right? So that was all assuming that. 
the normal market forces would would play out the way they are no one anticipated a pandemic which would shut down the entire global economy so because the well, pandemic some people anticipated it but <laughs> uh but be, did some insider trading but because um the pandemic what it did since no one's driving people are using are driving around less so there's not there's there's basically there's a demand shortage there's a massive demand shortage throughout the economy so there's a massive demand shortage when it comes to oil and so that's basically um led to technically an oversupply of oil so yeah like as peter as you're saying yeah th- there's yeah they literally of- don't have anywhere to put it right so it is literally and yeah i was reading about this and thinking about it last night and I finally started to understand the importance of the petrodollar, which we'll get into. But it is literally like an oil tanker um, holds like uh, two million barrels of oil. And the average Saudi Arabia. okay, Venezuela, I know, produces like. uh, It's like one point four million barrels a day, which is to say doesn't fill up a tanker. Saudi Saudi Arabia's oil production. I can look it up, but I'm sure it's around like 3 million barrels a day or something, which is to say like, you know, little, little more than just like one or two tankers. And that, Um, and that also is a major, major reason why, what explains all of American foreign policy in the Middle East is largely to secure the, um, control the flow of cheap oil to the global economy and making sure the United States has control over the spigot in, in Gulf oil. So hence why we have such a strong relationship with Israel and why we have a strong relationship with Saudi Arabia and why we're willing to back, you know, a very vicious government in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, uh, the oil market ticked up a little bit because Trump like did some saber rattling with Iran and in, in the straight of straight of horn moves, straight of horn moves is always is you know it's important because okay so Saudi Arabia produces twelve billion barrels a day. Fine, so that's like six tankers. Wait, you said twelve million or twelve billion? Twelve million barrels per day. Okay, that's a lot. Yeah, um, that's still, yeah. yeah, it is a lot. It is a lot, and they export I guess nine million. So they are, I don't know. Just looking up the basic statistics let's say they export like three tankers worth of oil a day right um there's not that many i just you know then that oil has to pass through the strait of those tankers have to pass through the strait of hormuz yeah where like which you know is bordered by iran Mm -hmm. and so it's very you know and the u.s military basically like is the like traffic cop there yep you know mm-hmm. to make sure everything goes through that's a great um, that's a great way to put it yeah traffic cop yeah that's basically that's basically the function of like the american war machine yeah. in in the middle east yeah that's, yeah that's 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 what the navy does i mean that's what the british navy basically yeah. did mm-hmm. they're you know they but yeah so <laughs> then they get to america and uh and uh yeah there's no there's no place to put it and so yeah it's just there which it's just hanging out there but it also made me think about like if americans by not driving could just crash the price of oil i just started to think like what if we actually 
did consumption strikes like that. I mean, mm. that may be the only thing that American that like the average the American masses could do to affect global politics is like, yeah, if there was just like a huge consumption strike, if nobody drove for one week, that could that could fuck some things up, you know, or basically as lit, everyone drove as little as possible for one week. I don't know. I want to bring I want to just uh, bring this up to contextualize, but it, it also just how crazy it is. So um, t- today is Thursday, April 23rd, 2020. So every time employment unemployment numbers come up, therefore, the number of people who applied for unemployment the week before. So basically, the numbers that come wow. out this week are. It, it, I guess it basically takes some time to count up the number of, of unemployment claims. For yeah. the well, week. it's a, yeah, you have to file every week is the thing. Yeah. And so I assume that's like, like I have to, you know, every Sunday I like go online, fill out a little form. Yeah. And that's how. And so I assume it's like that's the amount of people that did that every week. And so, yeah, so it's not necessarily new people. But well, yeah, it well, like, every, every week, here's the thing. Every week it keeps growing. So. Um, I think uh, uh, last week uh, or the the week prior, the week pri- uh, the last. Uh, uh, hold on, let me let me bring it up. Um, uh, I think it was um, by yeah. So I think it, the week prior, five point two million people filed for unemployment, and so that brought the unemployment numbers to twenty two million. So this week, as of April twenty third, twenty twenty, um. A total of 26.5 million people are out of work. And this is important because the jobs that were lost during the Great Recession, the 2008-2009 Great Recession, um, 8.7 million. So three times as many, like so far within five weeks since since the the, the pandemic really kind of took hold in in the United States, um, within five weeks... The, uh, we've had more people go on unemployment, like three times as many of three times as many jobs that were lost were wow. lost within five yeah, weeks. Yeah, in history, because unemployment insurance didn't exist in the depression. Well, so. and also, but here's the thing: like, so remember, everyone was talking about the recovery, right? Since the Great Recession, so twenty-two point four million jobs were created since the Great Depression. So basically, all the Jobs that were created during the recovery are all gone. More so, so basically, 26.5 million people are out of work right now, as of April twenty April twenty third. That is more than the jobs that were gained since the end of the Great Recession. So basically, all of the job gains since the Great Recession are all gone. So we're basically like. We're in a worse position than like the 2008 crash economically in terms of like unemployment. And like I said, like these unemployment numbers keep growing and growing. So they could, it, it could like, again, this is just as of April 23rd, but I'm pretty sure like those numbers are going to keep growing uh, week by week um, it, as, as this shutdown. Yeah. Cause again, like, you know, well, well, that's what they're afraid of. Yeah. And that, and the, and you know, for some reason, being on unemployment just like really makes some people just like murderously angry. And I don't get it because whatever. It's like, like I said, I'm like, I be officially became a man in America the first time I got my unemployment check. <laughs> uh, but it's, but yeah, it's, it's, 
it's a hard thing to wrap your head around because you're like, oh, well, everyone will just go back to work when this is over. But this is not going to be over, capital O, for a long time. Mm -mm. And so, yeah, there will be things that, you know, there will be periodic reopenings basically to keep the markets going. But that won't necessarily translate to the, you know, that doesn't mean that, like, everyone's going back to work or whatever. And, you know, so it is like, like, this could be really bad. And people and, you know, I don't know. Nobody knows what's going to happen, really. Um, We're all this is this is like putting neoliberalism to the ultimate test. And we're really seeing um, what's going to happen. But I wanted to focus on. Yeah. The petrodollar, which. Yes is actually this is because this is the whole thing it's like you know my whatever people can say whatever they want about russia and china but i am perfectly fine with american hegemony collapsing even if it empowers them or whatever and um the other thing is that uh peter is that why people call you a tanky uh no that's for my robust defense of joseph stalin (laughs) (laughs) But what was happening before this was that there's there's been this whole thing where, like, there's the American shale boom, the oil boom. It's, like, in North Dakota, right? And sometimes you even see, like, stupid lefties being like, yeah, no, we drill our way into in- energy independence. And then, like, Saudi evil Saudi Arabia is going to collapse. And that's not how any of this works. But Russia and Saudi Arabia are, like, they don't like like the shell the american shale industry and that was that was the thing they said back in 2014 when they um flooded the market the first time was that they were trying to drive them out let me just read i'll just i'll just start reading from this um because wait the, sorry what are you reading from oilprice.com if you okay. really want to understand what's happening stop reading um lib- don't even read like lefty if you want to understand like what's going on in the world you should read like oil news websites even over the economist um but it says saudi arabia has been in the news recently for several interconnected reasons underlying it all is a spendthrift country that is rapidly becoming insolvent while the house of Saud remains strongly resistant to change a mixture of reality and power play likely to dominate domestic politics in the coming years, following the ascendancy of King Solomon. Um, this is probably from 2015, but there's still there's still some things to be gleaned from it. Okay, this is fun. It's hard to imagine culture Saudi Arabia embracing the changes recommended by McKinsey. Um, Saudi Arabia hires like McKinsey and all these consulting firms to make them seem palatable to Western businesses. But the only thing that props them up is the oil company, which they've been trying to do an IPO for a while. And they've been they've been selling it off bit by bit and trying to, like, turn into basically like a, a nation of uh, venture capitalists. They're they're bi- Saudi money is like big in Silicon Valley. But OK, let's get to the important stuff. While the Arab countries flowed themselves on oceans of petrodollars 40 years ago, they have little need for them now. So we must turn our atten- attention to China, which is well positioned to act as white knight to Saudi Arabia. 
China's sovereign wealth fund could easily swallow the Aramco stake, and there are good reasons why it should. A quick deal would help stabilize a desperate financial and political situation on the edges of China's rapidly growing Asian interests and keep Saudi Arabia on side as an energy supplier. China has dollars to dispose, and a mutual arrangement would herald a new era of tangible cooperation. The U.S. can only stand and stare as China teases Saudi Arabia away from America's sphere of influence. In truth, trade matters more than just talk, which is why highly indebted America finds itself on the back foot all the time in every financial skirmish with China. Future currency policies pursued by both China and Saudi Arabia will, and their interaction will affect the dollar. point I want to make is that, you know, the U.S. basically has the petrodollar keeping up its uh, global hegemony. The petrodollar is just that Saudi Arabia has to... Saudi Arabia sells all of its oil in dollars, and since they're one of the biggest producers, any country that buys oil from them um, has to buy it in dollars, you know, basically. And that's why that's like you know what has been able to keep the dollar relatively stable but you know that's a shitty deal for every other country um and there china has been sort of pushing you know a few people to trade in wands or whatever they call it yeah i think it's a yuan that's i believe that's, yeah. that's the name well of there's the a different there's like a different official word for it. Oh, okay. You want, or you know, sometimes the European Union does this, but um, uh, um, but see, yeah, if it ever, you know, the more shocks to the system like this, and the more unstable the U.S. is, the less it is like looking that like uh, you know, we're our like our st- our political stability and this is the one of the things that people need to understand you know about the two party system and why it doesn't why it's always been a scam because like our empire one of our empire's strengths is the political stability which is based on the idea that like nothing fundamentally changes right so as america gets more unstable as you know it gets more unequal and all this stuff it will it will on some level affect our ability to project power and you know maintain our status as the global hegemon um and it that could happen a lot more quickly than anyone really thinks because china is basically like they're prepared for this moment they whatever whatever you opinion you have about them they're they're ready they're they're not shirking from the historical opportunities that are presented right now and america you know i don't know if there's really anything america could do to you know present to stop the empire from declining you know but we're certainly going to find out what we're going to try to do yeah i mean my my thoughts on china just in general i'll just i'll just make this quick point because um yeah when i was a teenager i traveled to china uh, mostly because my mom got a uh, she was offered a english teaching job i mean my mom's a retired public school teacher but but like during the early 2000s uh, she had like a teaching job there so that's that's why i spent time in china and i, I like i think a lot of times in the west uh when people talk about china and i think it, it particularly came to fore 
during our early stages of this pandemic. And I think um, there's actually, there's a good article in CNN that was basically saying like, because people were saying that uh, coronavirus COVID-19 came from these really dangerous and nasty wet markets in China. But like wet markets in China are not like, like the way they're talking about it are very, very overblown. Um, it's just basically a wet market. Like it's called a wet market because the floor is largely wet and you get like, it's just a normal place where people just get meat. Usually that's, that's what a wet market in China for the most part is. So, um, I think a lot of times, like when it comes to China, I I think sometimes critiques of China on the left, um, I think could do a better job of, of, of not being too mired in sort of Western caricatures of how China is. But at the same time, like, I think, uh, I, I also don't like romanticizing China and its intentions because especially, you know, as a Pan-Africanist, I am kind of concerned about, uh, China's role in Africa in, in the sense that like, there are reports of, um, China banning black people from, I think, a, a McDonald's. And so I think, you know, when it comes to China's relationship with Africa, I think there needs to be like, a you know, like I think a, a sharper critique of, of whether or not China has Africa's best interest at heart. But I think like Peter, what you laid out, I think um, in terms of the, the global big picture, I, I think it's, it's a good assessment because um, yeah, because China is uh, um, rising as an economic power. You, you are going to see like basically China and the United States like butting heads. And so um yeah, I think that'll be remain. That's something to pay attention to, and especially um, when it comes to U.S. militarism in the Asia Pacific, particularly in the Philippines and Japan, like our our base in Okinawa. Um, uh, the U.S. war machine is positioned in the Asia Pacific to counter the the influence of china but the thing is like we're on china's doorstep in the asia pacific when it comes to like the philippines and 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 japan like we're right yeah in south korea so um yeah i i just want to say that because i think like sometimes like when when the left talks like when the left critiques china i think there's a lot of there are a lot of legitimate reasons to criticize china but i think sometimes like people will often um knowingly or unknowingly repeat um just sort of like weird stereotypes that they have about china um so i think that's that is important because especially um there you know there are hate crimes you know sad number of hate crimes against uh asian people particularly chinese people because because of this pandemic people are looking at chinese people and asian people as like oh they're the reason why this virus is here is because it came from china and and so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of make a note of that because um, I think it is important to have like uh, reasoned critiques, but also not like be wary of like, OK, are, are are these critiques repeating stereotypes about China? And also, like, are are you repeating maybe CIA talking points? Because that that is like, yeah, that that is something to to keep in mind. Not even just for China, but for any other country. Like, cause, uh, yeah, I, I, I try to sometimes when the left debates like other governments that are usually in the United States crosshairs, I'm kind of, I, I'm sort of like, okay, I think there's a reason to critique these governments, but at the same time, it's like, wait, are, are your critiques grounded because 
you want to have regime change in China or you want to like have like some other cold war with China or like what what's what's the what's the intention here? So I just wanted to like make a note of that. But I do think, yeah, like the sort of power play, the economic power play between the United States and China, particularly as it relates to the global economy. Um yeah, I think that says something to to really pay attention to. Yeah, I will also say that like China's intentions kind of don't matter in the sense that like it's not about like what is in a nation's heart. It's literally about like what they have the capability to do, you know, what they have the political will to do and, you know, you know, yeah, what they're what they yeah, what they can what they can do and China can never do the kind of imperialism and colonization that the West did no. in Africa. No, and also China, like, to be clear, when it comes to China mm-hmm. and Africa, like, a lot of their, from what I understand, a lot of their um, involvement of a- in Africa is largely, a huge chunk of it is building infrastructure, but China yeah. isn't, like, they don't have the massive number of military bases that the United States has no. right so yeah, right. there's a there's a real important distinction between <laughs> what china's doing and the united states because i think sometimes even when talk when people talk about china and, and africa sometimes even that's overblown but at the same time i think yeah i think it's important to have like i think g- good critiques but like also not repeat uh stereotypes and you know u.s government slash cia talking points so that's just i want to make a note of that because i think like sometimes when the left talks about like china and these other countries like it it it, yeah. it, it can sometimes go in that direction so i just want to caution against that yeah and people really need to be on guard on this now and in the coming days and the near future because they're gonna i mean they're already doing it now um you know wars in the middle east are really just uh are just, you know, little maintenance actions. We're never gonna, I don't know. I, I'm still kind of, I still don't even understand why we thought what we did in Iraq was ever going to achieve whatever outcome we said we wanted. I mean, but, you know, yeah, the, uh, the U.S. empire is not going to allow a new, someone to dethrone it peacefully. So, at some level, I don't know if it's going to be proxy wars. You know, the Asia Asia Pacific is going to heat up. I'm pretty sure in the next couple of decades, and people need to be really smart and not stupid about you know whatever you think China's doing in Xinjiang or whatever. Um, like it kind of human rights doesn't like i'm sorry but human rights doesn't matter <laughs> it's it's not it's not an important part of any of any like country's historic you know calculations or the way that informs the way they act it's always just a it's always just a fig leaf it's always just pr it doesn't they don't care about that stuff that's not how state power operates uh, and you know though it's true that, uh, you know, information warfare is becoming a dominant thing in international relations and that is affecting things. But and also, yeah, and also, like, I mean, our relationship with China is like the United States still relies on China for cheap labor. I mean, you know, like, like particularly. Yeah, but, Chi- but China, 
Well, fun fun thing about Foxconn. Foxconn's actually a Taiwanese company. Oh, which... interesting. But the is oh, aren't, yeah. isn't the facility? It's in China, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're also they're also in Wisconsin now. So <laughs> globalization, baby. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the industrial Midwest is getting like this is the because this is the other thing you have people have to realize is like the America is gonna get penetrated by foreign capital. You know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know we're like super masculine, and so the idea of us being penetrated by anything is <laughs> gives people a lot of nightmares. But it's already happening. Um, we won't be able to keep foreign capital out, even as you know. So that is the one thing I will say about like the imperial core model is, and uh, the imperial core model. I mean, the idea that there are, you know, the set of nations that constitute the imperial core, mainly the U.S., Western Europe, and Japan, then there are sort of the semi-peripheries, which is, uh, you know, like Eastern Europe or something, or maybe China's in semi-periphery. And then there's, like, the absolute periphery, which is, you know, the poorest countries in the world, um, the third world, as it were. Um, That sort of formation is going to... It's going to change a little bit because, yeah, the... I mean... You need war, like you need wars to decimate populations to prevent countries from being economic actors. That's a big reason why imperial wars happen. And, you know, that's what it is like all this. I I really find the people who were like, we need to get chuff on chuff on China. That's all that Uh, tough, tough on China, right? Chuff on on China. We need to we need to get tough on China, but we don't want war. I'm like, what then? What the fuck are you talking about? You can't, like, you can't. That's you what can, like that's what Joe Biden was basically saying in the yeah. debate with Bernie Sanders. Again. As as Outcast says, like, don't pull the thing out unless you plan to bang. Like, don't talk about this shit if you're not willing to go through with it. If what you want is to put China back in its place, quote unquote, um, then you need to be upfront about that. I'm tired of these people who. Acts like they, like they're like China doesn't like China gets a say in this, and they're not going to just be like, oh yeah, no, we're f- we're fine being the world's workshop. No, that's they're they're that's not what they're doing. That's not where they're trying to go. Um, and you can't you're gonna. I mean, you'll literally have to you'll have to do a lot more than just like sh- stupid sanctions and trade wars to get them back to doing it get them back to that place so i don't know what people are talking about when they say stuff like that well yeah i mean well also um well here's the thing about like the whole human rights discourse in like how i you know i i've i've covered guantanamo i still cover guantanamo and like what's interesting is that like usually the things that the u.s does the kind of violence that we do usually don't get categorized as human human rights violations i mean in an ideal world right like theoretically human human rights i think are are a, a good idea and worth aspiring to but in the current reality that we exist in um i think the human rights discourse gets kind of weaponized i mean i don't i don't know if enough about um um china's treatment of muslims i'd rather talk to someone who's a lot more educated on that than i am um but i i will say i mean like look i I think it's i think it's fair to say like okay maybe like uh, one reasonable critique of time to be like okay um 
do you think like do people should tibet be independent or not i think that's a fair discussion to have right but at the same time i think when it comes to how the human rights discourse is is used um like there are no real uh there there's no there people are not using human rights discourse because they believe in the principle of human rights like that's the thing like no like in the way human rights discourse gets used it's always going to be political and so um uh so when we talk about like human rights when it comes to the united states versus china versus russia um i i I just think like that's that's something important to uh keep in mind is that like human rights gets used and manipulated for very very um political reasons um I will I will say just to kind of round out my comment on because I think that the whole China and Africa and, and China like that could be a whole other episode but I want to try to because we're getting close to the end of this so I want to try to wrap this up because I want to say something about black politics but I will say like I think when it comes to China and Africa I think one debate that I'm particularly interested in is um africa as a continent being self-sufficient and to what extent is china facilitating that and to be honest i don't think china is really helping africa become self-sufficient in terms of economic self-sufficiency particularly on the model of thomas sankara i don't think china is really helping africa to be self-sufficient so i think like particularly in light of covid19 and china's treatment of black people in china there is this discussion of like okay what is Africa's relationship going to be with China? Is China really a quote-unquote friend of of the African countries? Um, and so I would like to see Africa and the entire diaspora be self-sufficient. And that would also mean like, okay, we're going to have to reassess our relationship with China. Because I don't think China, under its current um, system, I don't think China is really, in terms of its goal and how it operates... I don't think China is really trying to work toward like third world solidarity in the way that was seen post Bandung conference. So I think that also needs to be kept in mind because China is not like the Bandung conference China. So that so in terms of their in how in terms of how China relates with Africa, like it's not out of a sense of of pursuing third world solidarity and like th- that kind of goal. So um that's a whole discussion, but I wanted to kind of like just just wrap I, well, that up. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I will I will weigh in briefly to say that, yeah, the sort of pan Africanist, uh, you know, future dream future, China's not going. That is not necessarily China's ultimate goal, but at the same time, um, I think that they have a strategic they have a strategic political interest in the sense that they need to be seen as you know, being beneficial to the continent. And so it's not the same thing as colonialism where it was like, yeah, no, we're, we're here for our reasons. I mean, that like, like that is, so that's important to understand. Um, And also with sort of, yeah, I mean, there is plenty of anti-blackness in China as there is all over the world. Um, I think it's important when you like, it's very easy to like take something that happened to someone and then, you know, blow it up 
in the sense of like this is it's not the you know anti-blackness isn't necessarily i don't it's not the like official policy of you know the ccp it's not it's not sort of the same kind of institutional structural force the way it is in the united states let's say uh, which doesn't mean that's not a problem but it's important to understand i guess the distinctions but it is also true that yeah i think china i think overall china in the post mao era their foreign policy has been a, some sort of like uh you know they're kind of the model for the third world of like successful development and they can use that model as an alternative to what a, you know the IMF and to and and that's basically kind of their I guess strategic approach but it doesn't mean that it's going to you know nobody's going to do for you what you need to do for yourself I mean, the question is like does China's development provide a fundamental obstacle to that and that's something that I don't necessarily have an answer for. But yeah, I, I want to. Um, we're going close to an hour, but I, I do want to. Um, <clears throat> uh, in one of the previous episodes, I explained. I talked about why I think black politics is largely dead in America, and I I want to um, flesh that out more because it's something I, I want to make like a something that's recurring. But I just had some thoughts I wanted to sort of talk about and then we'll kind of close out um but um well i think one part one factor is that the united states in general as a country is largely very atomized so in terms of political mobilization it's hard to galvanize people politically when everyone is living very very atomized and alienated lives so and i think that has a role to play in terms of the development of a strong black body politic within the United States. Um, what one of my um, I, I I watched this um, YouTube channel called Search for Uhuru. Um, it's a really good YouTube channel, Pan African YouTube channel. But uh, there's one of the guests is uh, Kala Genesis, and one one thing he keeps hitting on that I think is it got me thinking. I think he he's he's correct about this, which is that um. Black people in America largely don't socialize. Like the so, like the socialization of Black America is is it, what he what he says is largely um, like there's not a lot of socialization among Black people in America. And I think there's a I I, I agree with that. And I want to kind of expand upon that because when you're talking about a sustained body politic. You have to have like a set of ingredients in order to make it work, right? So, uh, one one of my classes I took in college, I took um, I did a minor in um, in uh, uh, Middle Eastern languages and culture. So, like I I remember taking a class, and I remember one of the papers I did a, did research on that just stuck with me is um, the role that coffee houses played in the Egyptian Revolution, because everyone socialized at the coffee house. So people had like political discussions, debates, all that, but the coffee house as a space was a social space and that provided a breeding ground for political mobilization. In the same way that like when it comes to class struggle, the workplace is where workers socialize because you're you're forced to work with each other, right? So you work with each other, you're you're and you're under the, the same boss, you have the same wage. 
and you interact with each other, that kind of socialization can help breed a, a, a sense of common political interest. So if you're at the workplace, you realize, wait a minute, we're both getting screwed by the same boss, but we're also both getting screwed by the same industry. So that means we as workers should organize collectively for our own political interests, right? Hence, Usually it takes a little bit longer than that. Way longer. But I, have, I'm, I'm giving like a very, very around. general like Reader's Digest. <laughs> I'm, boiling, I'm, I'm trying to give a very Reader's Digest perspective of this. But yeah, it takes way longer than that. And it's not easy. Uh, because there also are a lot of risks when it comes to politically organizing, especially in the workplace. And also you have to socialize with your boss and pretend that you like them. Right. Yeah. So when it comes to black America, I mean, like, okay, go back to slavery, right? Um, slaves had to socialize on the plantations and even on the slave ships because we were forced to be together, right? Because in Africa, like, again, it's like there was over 40, it was like 46 different African ethnic groups that were taken dur- during the transatlantic slave trade. So all those different African ethnic groups who previously had their own languages and customs in Africa were forced on these slave ships and taken to Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia, Cuba, Puerto Rico, United States, Jamaica, all throughout the Caribbean, Central America, right? So they were forced to talk to each other and be together on these slave ships and then forced to work together and talk together on the plantations. And so this does not get appreciated enough, but there were a lot of slave rebellions. But the fact that like they all realized, like, wait, despite our differences in Africa our linguistic differences, our tribal differences. One thing we do have in common is that, okay, we're all black. We're all of African lineage. And the people who are oppressing us all have white skin. They're the Europeans. They could be English, Dutch, French, Spanish, Portuguese, French. But that provided the ingredients you needed for slave rebellions because the slaves realized, like, wait a minute, while we're suffering, getting the shit beat out of us, whipped, tortured and forced to work in the sun for nothing for no wage at all because as a slave again you're not getting paid anything that's the definition of a slave that was the kind of socialization you needed to form uh common political interests amongst slaves right so then after that you go to uh the the jim crow period you had racial segregation right um black communities black people were forced to be with each other because of segregation we had no choice by law in america we were segregated in black communities and so that created a breeding ground for like okay there's a common set of black interests here because we're all here together and we all realize like wait a minute um we're sick of um you know the kind of suffering we're experiencing under jim crow racial segregation and apartheid right so then you get black institutions that get built that get built up to act on behalf of the political interests of the black community right uh naacp national urban league etc etc right and also uh even in the arts harlem renaissance right but the harlem renaissance like a lot of those um artists uh were around during the same time as marcus garvey the black national the the time the garvey movement black nationalism right so even if you look at some of the artwork and the poetry that was done at that time of the harlem renaissance was still in conversation with black nationalism and black nationalistic political aspirations right so um during so like i think when when people like when black people say like 
integration um, destroy Black America. I, I don't think it, it people miss the violence and the terrorism of Jim Crow, but what they do miss is like there were Black communities and Black people socialized with each other. After integration, what happened is that, uh, well, okay, middle class Black people got enough money to leave the Black community and go to the suburbs, right? And then also, I will say like what really two systematic things that were outside of the control of the black community that really destroyed the socialization of black people um gentrification and the war on drugs i think those two played a huge role in weakening the 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 sort of the 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 socialization and the and the grassroots um sort of fertile ground that you needed to to give rise to a black body politic because you know, when you start incarcerating millions and millions of black people, like that disrupts black communities because you take like people who could be, especially, especially black men, you take fathers out of the community, you take fathers out of the household, you take male role models out of the community, then you put in drugs and then you redline the black areas. And so they become poorer and poorer and poorer. Then there's a rise of street gangs. And so I think all these systematic factors have led to, I think, weakening the um, sort of grassroots socialization you need to um, provide a foundation for a sustainable black body politic. And I think like when I mean what I mean by like institutions, right, um, like like institutions like uh, uh, the media is an institution, right? Um even during like i i even remember still as a kid like there were uh black newspapers and black magazines ebony jet bet i mean bet got bought up by viacom but there was a point the bet was like their programming still reflected the interests of the black community like the earliest story i remember of police brutality i ever heard on the news when i was like i think i was like 13 or uh, i was I was young. I was like in my early teens. It was on BET, and they were covering police brutality in a way that the mainstream news wasn't covering it. Why? Because like it was a sustainable news channel, and it answered directly to a black constituency. So they didn't really they didn't have to care about what the New York Times thought or CNN thought. It's like, hey, this is a black news channel. We can say what the fuck we want. Who cares what the New York Times says? Who cares what CNN says? Who cares what NBC, NBC, and all those other channels say? We're gonna reflect black people's issues, and if you don't like it, you can fuck off, right? We don't have those kinds of media institutions in black America. Black newspapers have diminished. Black book publishers have diminished. Like Oakland, California, which is not far from where I live, Marcus Bookstores is the oldest black-owned uh, book publisher in the country. They used to have one in San Francisco that shut down because of gentrification. So, I, I like gentrification um, is also like I think part of the the problem with gentrification, like the displacement of black people from black areas in black neighborhoods has led to basically like you're bleeding the like like you're getting rid of of all the people you'd need to give life and sustainability to these black institutions so that they can preserve black culture not just for the current time but for the next generation for like kids grandkids great grandkids right i mean part of my political 
politicization was because of I had I was raised in a strong black family, but also I was exposed to black institutions, black like books and media that formed my political consciousness, right? So if that's gone and if that's weak, how is the next generation going to be politicized if you don't have that stuff? So in 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 as someone who's been working in media, like it takes a lot of work and energy to maintain, especially media, because you need to hire people who edit, publish, um, and also do fucking investigative reporting. I mean, investigative reporting in America, period, regardless of black community or non-black community, is like has been gutted. Right? There's barely any foreign reporting. Like a lot of overseas bureaus have been have been cut. So. When it comes to the issues of that impact black people, police violence, gentrification, the, the health, especially look at look at the number of deaths uh, of black people under COVID nineteen. We don't have institutions that can pay talented black writers a decent living so that they can do their job, which is to report on issues that impact black people. That doesn't exist. Like it, it's, it's it's largely weak. The media, black media institutions we have are the root. The root really has no real investigative function at all. None. And it's owned by Univision. So it's not even it's not even answering drink directly to the black community. It's part of a corporate conglomerate. So even the black stuff that they do publish still is filtered by a corporate media infrastructure that does not answer directly to the black community. So that means if they are filtered, there are going to be certain stories that they can't cover because, again, it's going to piss off someone at the at, at the top, right? So this is this I I just, I just wanted to kind of explain that, and also I will say just to kind of wrap this up, um, black politicians like a lot of black politicians sound more like standard issue Democrats than black politicians, and here's what I mean: like the black politicians that are around aren't really lobbying on behalf of just black people right like I, I like there aren't a lot of black politicians who would be like hey you know what after black lives matter we need to have like a special prosecutor to investigate these police these police killings right like, like I, I i hardly see any black politicians do that right like th- most of them sound like just standard issue democrats like a lot of black politicians are basically like they are just saying the same thing that like Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and all these standard Democrats are saying, right? Like they're just standard issue Democrats. That's not a black politician where you have a black politician advocate and lobby on behalf of black people, right? So, so, um, that's what I mean about the death of black politics. We don't have that. We have black people who have carved out their spot in the system, but that's not enough to sustain an independent organic organized black body politic that can lobby and fight on behalf of black people collectively and do so in a way and when i say independent like it's important for it to be independent because you know like if 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 like let's say if like you know being a black journalist you can work at like a a um white-owned media company right you can still write about issues relating to race but if you're working under a corporate media infrastructure there are going to be certain things you can't say because you can't piss off the corporate heads 
right? So they'll let you talk about race and police brutality, but you can't go too far. Otherwise, you're going to lose your job, right? Versus if you had an independent black media infrastructure, that wouldn't be an issue. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, like, like th there is independent media, but a lot of it's for white people, right? Like, I mean, I, look, I love my indie lefty media publications, but that same infrastructure does not exist for the black community. And I think that's a huge problem. And I, and, and even when it comes to nonprofits, like that's a whole other, that's also pretty touchy because even with nonprofits, you're still beholden to the liberal kind of donning class and like you know some of them they're, aren't they're they're honestly worse in a way because at least capitalists respond to ratings yeah um the nonprofits are very much in like we are we have a civilizing mission and we are giving you checks to carry it out i think that's interesting that you that he made that point because i when you said i was like huh there are i mean i always feel like there's always i always read it there's always like black society society black entrepreneurs happy hour or whatever there's always and it's like oh he means like regular black people yeah yeah exactly it's like, yeah, yeah regular the working class mm -hmm. the working class doesn't socialize yeah but yeah because the petty bourgeois the bourgeoisie they always socialize I was, exactly yeah i was reading something about um the future of hollywood and they're like oh yeah no they're like all the there's like zoom calls to like 50 people of all the like you know big wigs or whatever and i was like oh yeah, I mean, they, the booze, you know, yeah, the ruling class socializes. They always will. It's always mm -hmm. us. And, like, you know, whenever we get together, it's always a problem. Um, and it is like, yeah, yeah, though the closing of black social spaces, because it's all, I mean, it's also true that most black people don't live in the hood. Right. But th at the same time, like, places that were termed as the hood, I mean, what was important about them is that they were, like, the cent you know they were the center for black people in that city so even yeah if you didn't live there like that's where you would go to commune mm -hmm. as those places were you know disinvested and then destroyed or gentrified right mm -hmm. then the those spaces get lost and now we have twitter which right. is which is which has taken this place and that's taking the place of coffee houses and that's part of the reason anyone's on it but imagine but imagine like if you the moment you walked into the black bookstore, there was just like an FBI person just standing right there, <laughs> and he was just there all the time. I mean, you know, and like there's also somebody else who would find the most ignorant thing you anyone said and then just repeat it on a megaphone outside for the entire street to hear. I mean, that's basically what Twitter is. Yeah. So you know, for fomenting politics, it's it's really the worst possible tool for the people and and the reason why like that point stuck with me because i see it in oakland because i was i was just thinking about like growing up in the bay area like 20 years ago oakland was a black city not just in numbers but in terms of culture and socialization like oakland was like the the black area right so um now when i go to oakland like it's still black but it's like it like the black culture is because of gentrification it's kind of going away same with san francisco i mean there are parts of san francisco that were very black people forget people forget fillmore the fillmore district in san francisco was considered harlem of the west in the 50s like it was a oh, I, I think they still say that 
And the last time I was there, they have all the signs and stuff. Yeah, but the, the thing is, is like, I mean, uh, Fillmore is still black, but the rest of San Francisco is not. Like, dude, like, it, dude, man, having gone to U- University of San Francisco like two and a half years, like, I would take the BART and the bus to USF, and like, I can just see it, just, just walking around San Francisco. It's like, it's a very white city. Like, it's kind of sad because I remember San Francisco being like. A very eclectic multicultural city so like you had strong black communities but yet you also had very strong asian communities very strong latino communities um you had like hippie white people but like these are all pretty like you know like you know if 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 you were asian like there's there is still like a strong a strong sense of asian community particularly i mean this is this, this is going really deep but like you know there are asian families that have been in san francisco for generations like going back to the late 1800s right um a lot of latinos particularly like in the mission district right like you had strong ethnic communities in san francisco but like now when i go to san francisco it feels like fucking coachella like it's not like 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 the kind of multiculturalism not in like a a sort of cheap benetton ad fucking culture multiculturalism but like an actual kind of real organic bottom-up multiculturalism where like you had strong communities of different groups of people. You had, like, okay, you had Asians, and you had, like, a lot of Filipinos, Vietnamese, Chinese, Japanese in, in one area, but, like, they had a strong community. Um, a lot of Latinos, like Mexicans, Salvadorans, Guatemalans, um, strong black community. But, like, even if you you would still go to the same school district and, like, see each other, so, like, you know, you have, like, I mean, I could, I can go through my yearbook and you can see the kind of natural diversity in my yearbook, like like Tongans, Samoans, Filipinos, Mexicans, Salvadorians, Nicaraguans, Blacks. Like, you know that that was a huge part of, you know, and still is part of Bay Area culture. But gentrification, especially as it relates to Black politics, yeah, like you're right, Peter, about that distinction because, yeah, the Black kind of bourgeoisie they socialize like kind of like um fraternities jack and jill societies that kind of shit right like they socialize but regular everyday black people the the infrastructure you need to sustain black spaces and black community like have been weakened and i think people forget about that when it comes to politics because when it that's why i talked about like why i said about america being in a very atomized society because like if people are atomized how can you mobilize politically if you're just all separate and it's everyone just for themselves right if you're all together in like public spaces or anywhere it's it's easier to politically mobilize because once you start interacting with people you realize wait we have similar political interests and similar political ideas right or you may have like differing ideas but you can kind of like synthesize them in the same space right and and also something to consider how many black people live in the kind of sunbelt cities that are completely hostile to any form of public space like exactly, uh, exactly. houston or mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. any but yeah any southern city yeah any city that was that was built up post-war so that's i think yeah people forget that like i you know a lot of black people just like live in like strip mall areas yeah but yeah um yeah we're at 119 so yeah i just want to this one was kind of all over the place (laughs) but thank you for bearing with us yeah i just wanted to kind of explain because i was talking to a few people about it and uh i wanted to explain it more because i feel like uh 
American culture, like, uh, like I don't, I don't think we're really good at talking about what it means to have like an organic body politic. Um, and I think like, especially, you know, cause there have been polls that have shown that like, uh, you know, when it comes to Biden and Trump so far, like Biden and Trump, uh, are kind of neck and neck in the polls. And a lot of non-white voters are like either not voting or, um, the support for Biden is weakening. And like, you know, and I, one thing I, I kind of get frustrated with, like, uh, sort of mainstream media discussions about black people is that like, you know, if you don't really, if you're not really familiar with the black community, how it work and how it's structured, um, it's hard to understand black people's uh, p- political decisions. And I will say, I, for, I forgot to add, but like, I mean, the church was always a black institution, right? Because a lot of black people go to church. Wow. It was the only one. It was only the one. only yeah the only place black people could meet. Yeah, could... hence why a lot of black leaders during the civil rights movement, Dr. Martin Luther King was a reverend, Malcolm X was some preacher, right? So, like you know, religious institutions. I was talking to a student of mine, like I think earlier this year. Um, she's actually a, a black minister. And um, she was telling me about like how there are less black people that go to church, and and part of, she said part of the factor was gentrification. Like it's hard for the churches to maintain themselves in light of gentrification. So like there's all these like systematic factors that are undermining the black community's ability to collectively organize. So um, yeah, when you don't have that, like it's hard to sustain any real organic independent political body politic um and i think the only kind of black politics that exists is usually like democratic party nonprofits, uh corporate media and also and also academia so and it's like if that's the extent of black politics then like i don't i i'm i'm not that i i, I that does that does not give me a lot of hope <laughs> For, you know um but yeah i wanted i wanted to uh explain that and flesh that out because um i think it might be uh something that we might come back because that problem's gonna solve itself and we don't have anything to talk about (laughs) yeah um yeah all right we're all we're done um it's it's been long enough we'll get it we we really do need a good sign off but it's not it'll it'll, it has to happen organically yeah yeah we'll get better at it Until then, don't let the virus get you down. Yeah. All right. Peace, everyone. Stay safe. See ya.